Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I really, really wanted to scrap this one and preach about politics today. But cooler heads have prevailed and the Spirit has led, and we're going to go, go ahead with what, what I, what's, uh, the Lord's given me on my heart. Um, I'm really excited about this one. Uh, we're in this season where we've been, our, our kind of guiding vision for this period, and this moment in our church is family living in heavenly reality. We began by exploring the first of four rooms that we've defined uh, being healthy relationship. We moved from healthy relationship into healthy leadership, and now we've moved into a season of personal thriving. And so last week, uh, Janae talked to us about um, mental health, mental thriving, and this week I'm going to be talking about emotional health and emotional thriving. So I wanted to begin by um, just telling you a story, uh, and then we're going to pray. Uh, several years ago, when I was still living in Nashville, a former student of mine who lives uh, in Pensacola, um, he has an older brother who had uh, a heart transplant when he was just a couple weeks old. And, you know, he was always kind of the miracle child of that family, really nice guy, I met him a few times, um, and, he, and he, he made it until 23, and so it was just a really big blessing for this family um, that, that Ian had made it that far. Um, but Ian, uh, you know, he, he passed from complications at the age of 23, and um, by this point, Colin had already moved back down to Pensacola to be with his family. Uh, and my friend Brian and I, who was, he was, Brian's the pastor at the Anchor, we decided that we wanted to drive down uh, for the funeral. So we made the eight-hour trip um, down to the Pensacola area. And when we came into the church with, uh, where they were kind of having the, the funeral and the, the commemoration service, um, Colin saw us from across the room and immediately made a beeline towards us. And he had this really strange look on his face. And it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily the kind of face that you expect someone to have at a funeral, especially that of, uh, of their only brother. And Colin sa said almost immediately, he said, I, I, need, I need you to help me figure something out. So this was on a Wednesday, and his brother had passed Saturday night, and Sunday they had been in the hospital kind of making the final arrangements. And he said, when my brother passed, there was so much peace on my life that it almost freaked me out. And I found in that moment, like when we finally received the news that my brother had passed and, and all of this had kind of come, come to an end, that I was able to be so present for my mom and my, and my dad and my sisters. And, and even the past couple days, like I feel like the Lord has used me so much to be able to speak his peace and his goodness into this really tragic event. And, and I almost feel guilty for feeling this much peace. Like I should be more broken up. I should, there, there should be something more to this that I don't feel like I'm experiencing. Am I cutting myself off in some way? It was a really powerful moment because we took Colin aside and we were able to pray with him and just kind of figure out, okay, Lord, what are you doing in this moment? Because the stories that we've inherited from the world would tell us this is how you're supposed to act in this certain situation. This is how you're supposed to feel. And what we recognized in that moment was that the Lord had positioned him so beautifully to be a faithful presence in places of incredible pain. And that sometimes when we are guided by the Holy Spirit, we're actually surprised by our emotional responses to a moment. And it was so great because we, get to, we got to pray over Colin. We'd spent some time with his parents, heard about how they were blown away by the things that he was able to share through being present in this time of tragedy his family. But also to encourage him to be available for those moments where the Lord allows him to mourn and allows him to feel. And so I, I tell you that story right up front in this message because 
it's, it, it really shows me something about what it means for us to allow our emotional well-being to be firmly planted in the kingdom of God. That for us to release the narratives and the stories that we've inherited from the world that tell you how you're supposed to feel, and instead for us to be reoriented to life in Christ, being guided by the Holy Spirit, and for that to determine what it means for us to be emotional people. As Janae preached about last night when we're talking about mental health, she read from Paul and he says, we are not to be conformed to the patterns of this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. And you see, we live in a culture in an era today that tells us, no, 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 what matters is the heart. I've even heard this in churches. I've heard it from worship leaders. I've heard it from pastors. God, at the end of the day, he just wants our hearts. That's where it all matters. But I question that because I don't know if that's actually scriptural. God desires the whole person. And you see, when, it's tra- when we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, the way that we understand who God is, who he's called us to be, as Paul says in that passage, then we are able to test and seek God's perfect will. Our hearts are realigned and reformed and reshaped and brought into alignment with the kingdom. You see, our culture has reverted the flow that we come out of the romantic movement to this place of emotivism, that whatever it is that I feel, that's the thing that I'm to operate on. You see, even when we're making uh, discussion with other people, we don't like to say, I think, and then insert a proposition, because heaven forbid we ever offend anybody. So what do we say instead? We soften the blow. We say, oh, I feel like this, or I feel like that. But you see, the change in our language actually betrays a change in our understanding of what really matters, that we think that we're guided not by what we think, not by our minds, but what we feel. And I think that when we allow ourselves to be guided by what we feel, it leads us into some very dire situations. And it's not God's intention for us. That God came to save the whole person, to gather up all the broken bits of who we are, and to bring us back into completeness. And so tonight I'm going to be using this single verse from Ephesians 4 as kind of my main thesis. And I'm going to throw this up. This is in the NASB. And Paul says this, Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight. So let's pray. I'm going to pray for you, and you're going to pray for me. Okay? Sound good? All right. Just pray don't get too angry and and put too much political nonsense into this. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Um, Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this sweet moment, Lord. I thank you for these dear ones. Lord, I thank you for worship that uh, lifts our spirits and lifts our eyes towards you. Father, that you're constantly inviting us to reorient everything we are to see you as king, to see the advancement of your kingdom within us and among us and through us. So, Lord, we come before you tonight open-handed, open-minded, open-hearted, that you would speak your truth, that you would build up in confidence the, 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 the parts of us that are on the right track, and you must also correct the places within us that have gone astray. And may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we're going to be talking about this phrase, be angry and yet do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger. And essentially we're going to break that down into those three components and allow that to kind of give us the path to understanding what it is that we are to value when it comes to our emotional health. And so the first part is this, be angry. Be 
angry. This is where we're talking about honest expression, about how we are allowed to feel. You see, if we are created in the image of God, then we can see something within us that reflects the character of God. And for many of us, we've absorbed this idea of a God that is distant and is pure logic and is detached and unemotional. And what does that do for us when we feel emotions? We think that in some way we're compromising what it is to be the image of God. But the beauty is when we encounter the God revealed in Scripture, the Yahweh of the Old Testament, even more powerfully, Jesus of Nazareth as the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his character, we actually find a tremendously emotional God. We find a God who feels profoundly. And the beauty of us is it reveals if we are made in his image, we are also made to feel profoundly. It's a question of what what those feelings do to us. And if we believe in God's salvation story for each of us as he's gathering up what has been broken apart by the pain of the world and the lies of the enemy, then we recognize that God is actually restoring something. That word um, for, for reconciliation means to be made friends again. But God is reconciling us back to himself and he's reconciling us back together. He's calling us back into his image. And so what does that process look like through the eyes of God? This is from Ezekiel 36, verse 26. God says this through his prophet. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You see, when it comes to this this part of us that reflects the image of God in our emotional capacity, we see that our hearts are being turned from hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, hearts of tenderness, hearts that are soft and pink and gushy, maybe. But why have our hearts been made stone in the first place? Because we stepped out into a world that responded to our tenderness with violence. That, that the, the truth of who God has told us that we are since before we were even created has been replaced by these lies. That we have to protect ourselves that we have to bottle ourselves up, that we have to erect these walls of defense so that we don't allow ourselves to be hurt. But before long, our hearts become hearts of stone. And we actually recognize that we've lost the capacity to feel altogether. But as God turns and ministers in us and through us, he gives us this new heart. He transforms our hearts of stone and he turns them into hearts of flesh and he allows us to feel again. And then the invitation is for us to feel in the way that God desires for us to feel. I'll tell you what, sometimes I feel like I'm devolving at 32 years old because there's things that a decade ago would have never bothered me. I never used to cry. I was that guy, I'm very logical and emotions are a liability and let's kind of cut them off and suppress them. And You know, there's that joke on 30 Rock where you always talk about like, oh, I don't have any problems with my feelings. I do that Irish thing where I just bury them deep down inside and crush them with my mind. I used to do that all the time. But as the Lord's worked on me over the past decade, I found myself being more and more tender-hearted, coming to terms with this heart of flesh. And sometimes it feels like, no, this is the opposite. Because my, my culture is telling me to be a grown-up, to be an adult, means that I shouldn't be so affected by the things around me. Does that resonate with any of you? Maybe you've, you've felt that from culture or society. Especially, I think, for us, stereotypically as men, we're told that to grow up means... You grow up out of your feelings. 
How many of you, when you were children, you were, whenever you were in an emotional state, you were told you had to go into another room and get yourself together, and then you could come back out, right? And we were told that if we're ever feeling, that's something of a liability. And so you need to hide your feelings, you need to go away, you need to figure it out, and then come back and rejoin normal society where people don't get bothered by things like feelings. But I've recognized, actually, it's been the work of the Spirit within me to bring me to a new level of tenderness, and I... I cry all the dang time. I see videos of puppies and children and I can't handle it. There's something, but there's something about being part of the people of God. We find ourselves resensitized. And so we are emotional creatures because we are in the image of an emotional God. But what is the value of emotion? What is emotion? What does feeling do for us? Emotion binds us to the moment. It reminds us I'm here and I'm alive. Even a couple weeks ago, Cole brought up the story of Jesus um, going to resurrect Lazarus. And as Jesus encounters Mary and Martha, and they have these really harsh words for him, and he's standing almost at the the mouth of the cave, and, and Jesus knows what's about to happen. He has faith in who God is and what God desires to do and in his own abilities, yet he still in that moment weeps. And we've wrestled with that for 2,000 years. Why on earth does Jesus weep in that moment when he knows what's about to happen? But whatever we think is the reason for Jesus' weeping, it so firmly plants him in that moment with those people. And the truth of who God is and what God is about to do does not diminish in any way, shape, or form the emotions of being part of that process, of being in a place of tragedy and pain and allowing ourselves to feel fully. But the emotions make God's truth matter. Emotions make God's truth land in the fertile soil of the human experience. And this becomes part of the fabric of being the church. Paul says this twice. Look at this in 1 Corinthians 12, after he's talked about us as the body, and we're one body in many parts, and we all have these different functions. He says this in verse 26, If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, Every part rejoices with it. Similarly, in Romans 12, he says this, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. And that's very strange for us in the era of positive self-reinforcement because we feel like, no, 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 if I'm being given hope, then I'm not allowed to mourn. I'm not allowed to feel pain. If I have victory, that means that I can't feel sad. That means I can't be caught up in an emotional place. And sometimes we actually use the truth of God to blunt us to the emotional gravity of a situation because we want more than anything for the truth to have, help us to transcend above the human experience itself. But I don't think that's God's intentions. One of our, the works of the church is for us to learn how do we mourn together with hope? How can we... Yes! How do we... How do we enable ourselves to be so fully present to one another that we will weep with those who weep and we will rejoice with those who rejoice because we are so interconnected to one another in the Spirit, in the name of Jesus, but not in a way that devalues truth, but actually gives us a path and a trajectory to walk us through something so that the truth of Christ roots itself ever deeper in the painful realities of life. We're churching tonight. In my, own, in my own culture, in Irish culture, we have these two different events 
um, when someone passes. We have a wake and we have a funeral. And what happens in a wake is you lay out the body in the house or in their favorite pub, depending on the quality of the character of the person. And you lay the body out there bare. And everybody comes around and there's, there's shots of whiskey and there's beer and everybody's celebrating and, in, and enjoying life and telling stories and cracking up all in the presence of a dead body. It's jacked up. I'm not making any excuses for my culture. But what happens the next day? The next day after the wake is the funeral. And the funeral is the somber place. The funeral is the place where we mourn. The funeral is the place where we give language to tragedy and loss. And for some people, they even think about that, that the dichotomy of the wake and the funeral and say, well, that just seems so false. It seems disingenuine. You know, I believe that as human beings, our ability to create spaces to enable us to walk through the very complex emotions of what it means to be a human being are invaluable. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said this, what is a poet but an unhappy man who screams out in agony, but when he screams, his lips are so beautifully formed that beautiful music comes to him. And when we hear the poet scream, we, I'm not even done with a quote yet. And, and, when, and we all gather around the poet, and as he screams, we say, sing again, which is actually to say, may new tragedies befall you. You see, why do we love the singer-songwriter? Why do we love music or art or these things? Because it gives us some sort of a framework to walk through the emotions of what it means to be a human being. And the best art does not allow us to stay in our emotional context, but it walks us through it to something on the other side. And I believe that as the church, we're actually best equipped to be able to lead our fellow brothers and sisters in the human family through the emotions of being human, but also giving the path towards truth why are we afraid to feel why do we feel guilty for feeling why do we feel like we've been compromised here's a little nugget that some of you need to hear tonight your feelings will not kill you your feelings will not kill you okay i give you permission to feel to have emotions no one has ever died because they've had an emotion you see, we, we resist our feelings or we suppress them or we feel this guilt for feeling or we just allow them to run amok and control us and then they become this liability. But I think that sensitivity to how we feel in the moment, it can actually be the indicator that we're on the right track. As someone who professionally asks people how they're feeling on the regular, I so rarely am able to a answer that question on my own. And I've learned how they, sometimes I need to stop in moments of just intense emotional capacity and say, how am I feeling right now? Not what's, not what's true, not what's logical, but how do I feel that I can allow my emotional being in the moment to set alongside of all of the other things in my environment and actually give me forward movement? Because you see, it's, it's our emotions when they ground us in the present moment that actually give us the desire for resurrection in our own lives, in our emotional capacity, in a place of tragedy. When we feel fully the Good Friday experience, we look fully to the, to the Easter Sunday. You have to give yourself permission to feel. You cannot heal a wounded heart simply with logic. You see, this is what we're learning. Now, I love when we see that mod in modern science, what we're learning backs up biblical ancient truths. 
that trauma actually shuts down the left hemisphere of our brain, specifically the place of language. And there is an emotional response to moments of trauma that shuts us down. And there is no amount of logic and reason that can walk us back out of the pain of trauma. So we have to re-examine the way that we deal with the trauma that, you know, they, what, you know what they've realized is they've done more studies on post-traumatic stress disorder, which they used to call shell shock way back in the day. And they said, oh, this is something that soldiers come back from the battlefield with. As they've done research over the past 30 years and seen all of the little indicators of what makes PTSD, they've realized pretty much all of us are walking around with PTSD. Pretty much all of us, because we've had some sort of painful, traumatic encounter in our lives that has rewired our brain and conditioned us to operate, not out of a place of logic, but out of a place of feeling. And so the work, and this is just so much the beauty of God, because I feel like he's kind of saying, like, yeah, I've been saying that all along. But it's the Lord that comes alongside of us, and he meets us in the place of emotion. And he walks us through it, first and foremost, by his presence and his compassion. And then secondly, allowing the healing touch of Christ to come into those places of trauma and to walk us back into wholeness. That's really good. Faith and science are not as far apart as we think they are. Can I get an amen or an amen? Yes, we can. <laughs> can I get an amen? I'm about to homilize. That's my tradition. But when we're talking about our emotional capacity, we need to find the balance between honesty and honor. I've heard Dan Allen talk about this, that if we pursue honor without being honest about how we feel, then it's not very much like biblical honor. But we have to find the place to be honest. We need that Irish wake moment. We need that place in the pub where we're feeling and it's just coming all up. But then we need honor to walk us out of that moment, to recognize that our emotions in the moment are temporary. And they're very powerful indicators to what's going on within our soul. But that's not the end of the story. And so it's honor that actually guides us into the next place. And so the first is be angry. The second is this, and yet do not sin. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Of course, we're talking about emotional stewardship. So we have to let our emotions take their course. But we have to trust by faith as Christians that our trajectory is joy. It's a lot like what Janae was talking about last week with the damaging thought patterns. We can't allow ourselves to get stuck in these emotional circuits that keep the wheels spinning and don't give us any forward place. And so if feelings do not hurt you and feelings will not kill you, it's important to recognize then what has conditioned us to feel guilty for how we feel or to suppress our feelings is what comes after the feeling, the place that we have not steward, stewarded. Feelings don't hurt people. Reactions do. Feelings don't hurt people. Reactions do. About 10 years ago, the prophet Stephen Colbert came up with this word, truthiness. Does anybody remember truthiness? He said truthiness is when something just feels right. It just feels correct. And again, the, the profundity of that joke is that it's very appropriate to the way that our society works together today. We say, oh, I don't care about reason or logic or capital T truth. It's just 
Whatever feels right to me, that's the thing that I'm going to pursue. Consider our contemporary political climate. Ah, see, I was going to get it in here. All right? It's not the, like we're seeing all in all of these rallies all across the country right now, emotions are getting stirred up and people are doing and saying terrible things. Let me rephrase that and narrow it. Christians are doing and saying terrible things. Because when we're guided by our emotions, when we let our emotions control us, very rarely are we self-reflective, which for the Christian is actually to be spirit-reflective, to turn inwards and to examine ourselves. And it's not our emotions that hurt the person next to us or, or, or we hurt ourselves. It's our unhealthy reaction to the emotions that we're having. The beauty is that there's almost always a seed of good desire in our negative emotions. There's almost always a seed of good desire in every action that a human being takes. If we truly believe that we are made in the image of God, then we know that his likeness is our trajectory as a species. And it's important that we enter into a space where we can find out what's the seed of good in the feeling that I'm having. I guarantee you, you're either going to end up in a place of mercy or justice. That's where your emotions come from. Something wells up within you because you perceive a lack of mercy or a lack of justice. And something within you wants to do something about it because it's what you were created to do. But if we don't allow the Lord to condition us and to bring us back into proper alignment with who he's called us to be, then we make some very different conclusions. I love using the language there of reactions in the flesh versus the response of the Holy Spirit. This is another very Pauline response. My friend Garland, who's a pastor out in Tampa, has two little boys, and he was teaching this, them this even from a very young age. Levi and Abraham were their names. And then Levi would do something and say, Levi, was that a reaction out of the flesh or out of the spirit? And he'd go, that was the flesh, Dad. And he's like five years old. I was like, this is a very, this is a very self-aware five-year-old. That is a rarity. But one time, Garland was driving with the boys in the back of the car, and someone cut him off, and Garland let forth all of these four-letter words and these expletives. And Levi's in the back, and he goes, Dad, Dad, Dad. Was that out of the flesh, or was that out of the spirit? (laughs) And he was like, you're right. You're right. That was a reaction out of the flesh. You can teach these things to five-year-olds. But learning... The reaction out of the flesh versus the response of the Spirit allows us to seek inward and find out, well, what is God's truth about this? For us to have that ability, even mentally, to take a step back and to prayerfully reconsider what our natural fleshly reaction would be. I would say another aspect of that learning, the reaction of the flesh and the response of the Spirit, is understanding when is the right time and place for us to process our emotions. If you turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 14. This is a very short passage, but absolutely beautiful in what we see in Jesus living this out in real time. The beginning of Matthew 14 is where John the Baptist has been beheaded by uh, Herod the Tetrarch. And as, as we often see in Scripture, there's not necessarily emotional context, so we have to kind of use our divine imaginations to put ourselves in the shoes of the character to see, well, what might they be feeling? And the beauty of that is when we come to Jesus, we don't project our emotional capacity onto Jesus, but we let his emotional capacity change us, okay? So look at this. This is in verse 13. This is, um, John the Baptist has been beheaded. His disciples come to Jesus to inform him of what's happened. It says this, when Jesus 
heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Okay, now just for a moment, put your thinking caps on. Why would Jesus hear that John the Baptist has been beheaded and then withdraw by boat privately to a solitary place? Mourning, why? Because his cousin was murdered. Remember, they've known each other since in vitro, since before either of them entered into this world. In all likelihood, they grew up together. They learned together. They played together. There's an emotional context to this moment that when Jesus finds out that his cousin, perhaps his best friend in all of the world, has been beheaded. And we see even in Matthew 11 that Jesus said to him, I'm sorry, but you're not getting out of prison for this to happen in order for the kingdom to advance. We can only imagine the emotional trauma that Jesus is going through. So he withdraws privately to a solitary place in order to mourn. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. I love that. So powerful. The story that immediately follows is Jesus feeding the 5,000, one of his most well-known miracles. But when we examine this place of Jesus' emotional capacity, we ask, who's in charge? Who's in charge in that moment? Because I guarantee you, Jesus had every right to say to those people, I'm sorry, I can't, not right now. I can't do this. Give me, just give me a few moments. Give me a couple days. Let me process, and then I promise you I'll come back, and I will feed you, and I will heal your sick. And Jesus would have every right to do that. But it says Jesus had compassion on them. Jesus' heart went out to them. I've talked about compassion very often. It means something like, I can't help but be drawn into the reality of your situation, of your life. And in that moment, for Jesus, the Holy Spirit is in charge. The Holy Spirit is calling the shots. And Jesus, for that moment, is able to release the need to mourn and to feel something in order to be faithful to what God is calling him to, and a miracle occurs. And then we see this as we uh, scroll down to verses 22 to 24 in that same chapter, right after the miracle. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves, because the wind was against it. And so you see in that moment that Jesus, who is emotionally exhausted, still chooses to be faithful to who the Lord's calling him to be in that moment, because he trusts that he's going to have the space later to be able to process and to mourn and to get alone with God and to walk through the emotional loss of his cousin. Is that how we're guided? See, when we choose to be guided by the Spirit, do we trust in God's timing that He will give us the space to feel, that He will give us the space to walk through whatever we're feeling in the moment? But that moment may not be right now. If we're motivated by compassion, when we make those kind of decisions, are we making the selfish decision that says, I deserve this? Or are we making the compassionate decision to say, okay, I'm going to be here for you. And I do not make a policy out of that. I'm not saying to make that law. 
This is the beauty of what happens when we're guided by the Spirit, because we see several times where Jesus does, in fact, say no to opportunities that are presented to him. But to be so sensitive and to trust in the Lord's timing enough that we're able to assess the moment, to say, Lord, who are you calling me to be right now? Is this space responsible for me to process? Is this space safe for me to process with you one-on-one or with the people that I'm surrounding myself with? So be angry, and yet do not sin. And finally, do not let the sun go down on your anger. I'm talking about resolution of our emotional capacity. In January 2012, the Journal of Neuroscience did this experiment where they showed people certain images that would elicit an emotional response, and they tested their minds 12 hours later to to show them the same images and see what's going on with the synopses in their brain. And they recognized that there was very little change in 12 hours of daylight or being awake between their initial response to an image and then the response they had 12 hours later. But what they recognized when they showed someone an image and that person slept on it, and then woke up the next morning and they were shown that same image, they actually had a greater emotional response to it. And so again, the beauty that we are only just now catching up to God's design, he's been saying that this whole time, do not let the sun go down on your anger. That sometimes we have to recognize that if we allow things to stew, if we sleep on things, it actually heightens the emotional response, it doesn't resolve it. And so what God is telling us here is that if there is anger within us, for us to resolve it before the sun goes down. Because emotions can settle in and they can lead us to bitterness, to unforgiveness. They can lead us back to those hardened hearts from which God has rescued us. And so I think the challenge for all of us is to make peace with our Father before we fall asleep. And that may not give us the space to resolve something with another human being. That may come later. There may come the opportunity later for you to resolve something with another person who's hurt you or you've hurt or whatever it might be. But before you go to sleep, make peace with your Creator to release anything that has led you towards a place of negative beliefs or negative emotions and to trust God for resolution in relationship because that's what He does. He's in the business of turning curses into blessings. He's in the business of reconciliation. But there's a larger picture to us resolving our feelings. Take a look with me at Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. The beauty, this again, the Lord's timing, this came up twice this week after he had led me to this, by from two different people in two different conversations. David says this, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me. And know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Dear friends, do you realize that the feelings of guilt, shame, regret, anxiety, despair, those are not things that we're called to run away from. But those are feelings that we're called to face with the tenderness of the Holy Spirit. You see, again, I think that we've absorbed these very true statements about us having victory in Jesus, but what that's told us is that if we ever feel guilt or feel regret or feel shame or feel condemnation, we have to turn and run the other way because that's not something that God would ever desire for us to feel. 
but what we actually do is prevent us from engaging in what might be the untended to conditions of our soul that God is begging us to open up to him so that we can actually walk into the reality of healing that he has for us. You see, God taking us by the hand and through the tenderness of the Holy Spirit, he does not save us from feeling but he uses our feelings to indicate to us the work that is yet to be done deep within our spirits, deep within our souls. And it's the tenderness of the Holy Spirit that gives us the courage to face our feelings without fear. In 1 John chapter 4, he says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And it's the work of the love of God, the hand of the Holy Spirit, walking us through our feelings of fear, guilt, shame, regret, or whatever it might be, that we find resolution, that we find answers, that we find truth. God delivers us not by transcending above the human experience, but walking us through the very midst of it, our own personal deserts, so that we we might find ourselves in the promised land. A few weeks ago, I was up in Nashville. I spent took retreat again with my friend Brian. And when we were back, I decided to set up a tattoo appointment. Can't show it to you. It's on my thigh. That would be inappropriate. But that morning, I, I, I took a phone call with my mom. She, my, my grandfather was, got really sick. He took a turn for the worse, so she had to fly back to Ireland to go and take care of him. So she's in the airport at JFK. She calls me to have a conversation, and she says, you know, what's on your agenda for, for today? What are you doing? And I said, oh, I have a tattoo appointment. She goes, no. Cancel it. You do not need any more tattoos. I said, mom, I'm 32. But I didn't say it like I was 32. I said it like I was 12. So I did what most of us would do. I quickly diverted the the, uh, conversation to other less tumultuous territory. But it messed me up. See, this is what happens to us in trauma. We emotionally revert back to the place of innocence. Okay? Whenever you've had a traumatic event or a a, a confrontation that that causes fear to stir up in you, I don't care what age you are now, emotionally you will revert back to the place of innocence. It might be five years old, might be 12 years old, but you revert back, you hide. And this really bothered me that I had such an emotional response to this thing that my mom said to me. And she's under a lot of stress in that moment. My goodness, she's going back to, for three weeks to take care of her ailing father, to put him into a, to a home and to, to, to sell his house and they had to put down the dog and it was just awful. So she's responding out of her emotional state in that moment. But it really messed me up. And the weekend that I came back, I was outside and I was was just washing my car and I was just kind of praying and I'm like, okay, Lord, what is this? Seriously, I'm 32 years old. Why do I have that kind of response? And immediately the Lord said, you have a deep-seated fear of disappointing the women in your life. And I was like, well, dang it. (laughs) What? Because what do we do when we have those moments of fear or guilt or shame? We go, no, 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 no. I can't go there. I've got to claim the victory. I've got to claim the victory so tight and I've got to squinch up my eyes and and prevent myself from even looking at the thing. And then we wonder why it doesn't go away. 
But the Lord said that so quickly, and I realized how true that was, that the women in my life that I love and I care about, whether it's my mother, whether it's the people that I'm in home group with, whether it's Melissa, I have these terrified responses if I feel like I'm disappointing them that make me revert back to a childish state. But the beauty is the Lord reveals something, and maybe it's a little bit humiliating. Maybe it's embarrassing, and it causes all of these other feelings to come with it. But we are not guided by our feelings. They are not a liability. But then we have to, I have to, and I'm still in this process, trust that the Lord takes me by the hand and in His tenderness is walking me through this very specific emotional wound in my life to places of forgiveness, of forgiving women that have come before that maybe have instilled that wound in me. To forgive my mother in that moment for the, 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 the struggles that she's going through, to learn to have compassion on her. To forgive myself for reverting to being 12 years old all over again. And God is reaffirming in that my manhood. And he's, he's healing my relationships with the women that I love and care with my life. But I would have never entered into that place if I was not able to have the courage to pray that same kind of prayer that David does. Lord, examine my heart. Reveal to me my anxieties. I know it's humiliating and I know it's embarrassing, but show me what you see there. And let's do the work of overcoming these things. Not because we're avoiding them, not because I'm just throwing little phrases at them and hoping they stick, but because I'm actually open to the work of God. Maturity and faith guides us through emotions to truth. First John, the writer says this, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. Let me rephrase that. City Beautiful Church, in this moment, if your heart is condemning you, it's okay. Because God is greater than your heart. God is greater than your feelings. Your feelings will not kill you. He has already saved you. He knows everything. Dear friends, if your hearts do not condemn you, we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask because we keep His commands and do what pleases Him. Whatever the condition of your heart right now, God is greater than that. And whatever you feel about yourself and your situation, God has a far greater perspective in that. That he's waiting for you to open up the fertile soil of your life, your your emotional well-being in the moment, and allow him to speak his truth into it in a way that it walks you deeper into his reality and the reality of the kingdom of God at work. Finally, one of my favorite phrases in all of Scripture. And it came to pass. And it came to pass. Your feelings will not kill you. In fact, they are one of your greatest assets when properly aligned with the kingdom. They are going to ground you in the moment in ways that you never thought before. They're going to remind you that you are alive in ways that you never thought you were capable of. And they're also going to pass. Because we worship a God who is not static. We worship a God who is real and present to us and is for us and goes ahead of us. We worship a God who writes stories 
And he does not leave us where he finds us, but he walks us deeper into relationship with him and affirmation of who he's created us to be. And that means our emotional capacity as well. So I invite you to stand with me, please. And we're going to worship this wonderful, emotional God. We're going to invite him to guide us by his Holy Spirit through whatever we're feeling in this moment. And we hadn't necessarily planned this, but I just want to invite some of our leaders to go into that back space. And if there's anything that the Lord's stirring up within you right now, if, if you're hearing that, like, Lord, examine, show, show to me my anxieties, and it's doing something to you, I encourage you, go back and seek prayer from some of the leaders of our community and allow them to be the mouthpiece of God to walk you through those places of embarrassment or guilt or shame or regret or whatever it might be. But for the rest of us, let's worship this God who's given us these hearts of flesh, who's resensitized us so that we are so fully grounded in our own stories and the stories of one another that we see God manifest. We see his glory all around us. So let's pray and worship. Father, I just, I thank you so much that you've made us emotional creatures. That you've given us this ability to be so bound together in how we feel and to find ourselves bound to you in how we feel. Lord, I just invite you right now to send your spirit to move through our hearts, to shine your light in some dark places, and to draw us deeper into your truth. Lord, give us permission to feel. Teach us how to make friends with our emotions. Yeah, I think for some of you, the Lord's saying that, that your emotional self is your enemy. And you've heard it said, love your friends and hate your enemy, which is your emotional self. But Jesus is saying to you, no, 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 love your enemy. Even if it's your emotional self, love your enemy. And see that enemy become a friend. See the kingdom of heaven advance. Lord, I thank you for that. Would you move in us and through us tonight, Father? We pray all of these things in the strong and blessed name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ.